WMRA News. I'm Bob Levicky. Two fired employees of Valley Health in Winchester who refused COVID vaccines are suing the health provider. UVA officials are criticizing a new member of the board over recently released text messages in which he declared a battle royale for the heart of the school. And we're in the final hours of this year's regular General Assembly session, and uh, we review some bills passed this week. And, of course, Jeff Shapiro offers his perspective, too. This is the WMRA Daily for Friday, February 24. Lawsuits by two former Valley Health employees claim the region's largest medical services provider unfairly fired them in 2021. They had refused Valley Health's COVID-19 vaccine mandate, citing religious exemptions. The Winchester Star reports that Lori Schwartz and Douglas McDowell claim in separate lawsuits that Valley Health discriminated against them by not granting exemptions from the mandate. Valley Health fired Schwartz and McDowell, both of whom worked at Winchester Medical Center, for refusing to take the vaccine. Front Royal attorney E. Scott Lloyd, who represents both plaintiffs, was a vocal supporter of healthcare professionals who opposed Valley Health's vaccination mandates in 2021. A spokesperson for the University of Virginia says a member of the school's board showed a, quote, disappointing disregard for faculty and staff. In newly released text messages, Bert Ellis promised a, quote, battle royale for the heart of the school. Ben Pavier with VPM News reports. Governor Glenn Youngkin appointed Ellis to UVA's board last year. Text messages revealed by a public records request from Richmond author Jeff Thomas show Ellis referring to UVA's administrators as schmucks. Ellis also said a vice provost has, quote, nothing to do but highlight slavery at UVA. Thomas took UVA to court to force the records release. I think their strategy was to delay release of these horrible messages until Mr. Ellis, the board member, was appointed. Virginia's General Assembly confirmed Ellis's appointment earlier this month, before the texts were disclosed. Student and faculty groups had called on lawmakers to reject that appointment. They argued that Ellis's conduct and rhetoric, dating back to his time as a UVA student, cut against the school's values. Ben Pavier reporting. Next week, the city of Waynesboro will host the first of two community meetings to discuss how it should allocate funding from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. WMRA's Randy B. Hagee reports. Each year, HUD gives out funding to cities and counties in the form of Community Development Block Grants, or CDBG funds, which have to be used to provide quality housing and living environments and expand economic opportunities for people making a low to moderate income. Waynesboro plans to once again allocate some of its allotment to the Port Republic Road neighborhood, the city's historically black neighborhood just north of downtown. The city will hold a community meeting to discuss potential uses of the funds at the Rosenwald Community Center on Tuesday, February 28th at 6 p.m. What do the citizens say are, you know, the housing and community development needs in our low and moderate income areas? Leslie Tate, the city's director of community development, said a neighborhood steering committee developed the Port Republic Road Community Action Plan last year that will guide how they spend the money. The goals of that plan do significantly focus on kind of retaining the history and the importance of the history of the Port Republic Road neighborhood and then taking that history and hoping to kind of expand on it and continue it to invest in the future. 
She's still waiting to hear the exact amount of funds Waynesboro will receive this year, but expects it will be close to last year's allocation of about $188,000, which went to sidewalk improvements, a homeless shelter, program administration, and signage and landscaping in the Port Republic Road neighborhood. Elsewhere in our broadcast region, Charlottesville, Harrisonburg, Stanton, and Winchester all received between two and 600000 last year. HUD calculates these amounts based on population size, the extent of poverty, and housing conditions. For WMRE News, I'm Randy B. Hagee. Learn more about that story through links we've posted at WMRA.org or on the app. Democrats are trying to use a change to the rules of the House of Delegates as a way to spotlight abortion protections. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope reports. House Democrats don't have the votes to change the rules, but that's not stopping them from forcing a vote on changing the rules to get a vote on a constitutional amendment protecting abortion rights. Delegate Charnel Herring is a Democrat from Alexandria who is chairwoman of the House Democratic Caucus. I have seen us pass transvaginal ultrasound bill. I have seen us pass laws that are not evidence-based when it comes to abortion. And I've also seen basically smoke and mirrors where our governor, while campaigning, said, I'm not going to talk about it. I'll do something when I get in office. Governor Glenn Youngkin wants a 15-week ban, although that effort is being blocked by a Senate controlled by Democrats. Delegate Bobby Oreck is a Republican from Caroline County who says changing the rules for election year politics is a bad idea. We will establish a new cusp in practice that any time You want something brought to the floor for a vote. You don't even have to have a majority. You can just do it by, well, I'm going to put in a rules change to force that issue. And that's what we're going to run on in November. The effort to change the rules and take a vote on abortion was unsuccessful. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, I'm Michael Pope. The General Assembly approved legislation Thursday that will make organized retail theft a felony and make those convicted of the crime eligible for prison sentences of up to 20 years. The legislation, which has the governor's support, will make it a Class three felony for anyone to conspire or act in concert with one or more people to steal retail merchandise with a value exceeding $5,000 in a 90-day period with the intent to sell the stolen goods for profit. Organized retail theft is a financial problem for businesses and a crime trend that police and lawmakers want to stop. A state report found that approximately $1.3 billion in merchandise is stolen this way every year. Lawmakers also passed a bill that would prevent future Virginia governors from issuing any emergency orders that would shut down church services and other religious gatherings while leaving businesses and other secular facilities open. The bill grew out of frustration with COVID-19 shutdown orders. Governor Glenn Youngkin is expected to sign the bill. A legislative proposal to establish a process for reviewing and sometimes capping certain prescription drug prices in Virginia failed to pass the General Assembly this year. Megan Pauley with VPM News has more. The bill would have created a prescription drug affordability board with health care experts appointed by the governor and lawmakers as its members. Jenea Moore, a VCU graduate student, says a price cap on her asthma medication would mean she could actually afford it. She's often had to do without her monthly prescriptions since prices tripled during the pandemic. Because it is so far out of my budget to the point where my medication is costing as much as my electricity bill. So it comes down to a monthly cost of do I get my medication or do I make sure I still have 
my lights working. A 2019 survey found one in four Virginians weren't taking their prescriptions regularly because of the cost, like more. The Yunkin administration opposed the legislation during a Senate panel hearing, saying the board's authority would be too broad. The bill cleared the Senate but didn't make it to the House floor. Megan Pauley reporting. Many members of the General Assembly will end their session for the last time this year. And Michael has that story. Almost a dozen House members are running for the state Senate, so they are not running for re-election in their House districts. And more than a handful of other House members are not seeking re-election at all. Senate Majority Leader Dick Sasslaw will not be coming back. Senator Jennifer McClellan was recently elected to Congress, and Senator Jill Vogel is a Republican from Fauquier County who is also leaving elected office. I will be very sad to leave. However, I think it's important to have a sense of timing and a sense of your own limitations and know that once you've done this job for 16 years, that's a good long time. And I think it's an appropriate time for me to step down while I still have time to do other things in life. (laughs) Delegate Jeff Bourne is a Democrat from Richmond who says he wants to spend more time with his family. For me, it really boiled down to just really wanting to have more quality time with my family, my kids, especially as my son enters middle school, my daughter matriculates through high school and on to college. I just want to be there for all the moments. This is a grueling job. It is a very grueling job and one that also requires you to have a full-time job because this is quote unquote part time. (laughs) In addition to all those retirements, many members of the General Assembly are in fiercely competitive primaries against each other, incumbents facing incumbents because of new district maps. And that means the next General Assembly is likely to have a lot of new faces. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, uh, Michael Pope. All right, time for some analysis. The last few hours of the General Assembly session ticking away. And the legislature will look remarkably different when it convenes next year. Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Michael discuss the week in politics and state government. We're outside the executive mansion. Hopefully, Governor Glenn Youngkin will walk by and we can ask him a question. But for now, Jeff Shapiro, this governor, and House Republicans are in a battle for tax cuts against Senate Democrats. What's going to happen with this budget standoff? Well, certainly as we approach the scheduled adjournment, there doesn't seem to be any indication that both sides are near agreement. Uh, The House Republicans, remember the House Republican majority, is all in on Glenn Youngkin's additional tax cuts. The Senate Democrats, the Senate Democratic majority, is all in against them. That's about a billion dollar difference. And of course, it being an election year, one might suggest they're not necessarily interested in, in accomplishing as much on when it comes to taxes and spending as it is getting it in the record that they tried. You mentioned the election here, the 2023 election. How much does election year politics sort of loom over what's happening here with the General Assembly? Uh, it is a constant presence. Uh, and it is one that is, given redistricting and all of these new boundaries, one that has a lot of people racing the exits. I mean, for example, Dick Saslaw, the Senate Democratic Majority Leader, he'd been expected to announce his retirement, finally did. He has 48 years in the legislature, 44 of them in the Senate. Ken Plum, the senior member of the House of Delegates, has been in elective office and elective politics for almost 50 years and was once mentioned as a possible speaker. He's 
leaving the legislature. There are 66 delegates and senators who under this these new maps are doubled up and tripled up. And we're looking perhaps at some big incumbent v incumbent primaries. Tommy Norman, the Senate Republican leader, is in the same district as his protege, Ryan McDougal. Still no word on whether they're going to slug it out. I would imagine every redistricting cycle has a lot of new faces when there's the new districts and you bring in the newly elected General Assembly members. Um, Do you think that we're going to see more new faces in this cycle than in previous redistricting cycles? Oh, I I wouldn't be surprised if if we saw 30-plus new faces in the House of Delegates. The Speaker, uh, Todd Gilbert, is predicting as many as 32 new faces. It's very easy to come up with at least 12 seats turning over in the state Senate where there are only 40 members. A turnover on that level is going to make for a very different body. And certainly if a third of the seats turn over in the House as well, a very different House chamber. And then finally, the election of State Senator Jennifer McClellan to Congress opens up that state Senate seat. However, there's a twist here because it's the only the unexpired term, which is the rest of this year. Jeff Shapiro, what's the use in electing somebody for the last few months of this year when the General Assembly won't even be in session? Remember, the legislature is going to return at some point in the spring to finish up uh, the legislation that it passes during the winter passed on to the governor uh, for his signature for amendments uh, for his vetoes. Uh, the Senate Democrats don't want to take any chances. They want a full complement on deck for that so-called veto session to prevent, if not discourage altogether, any antics by this Republican governor. All right. Well, we're outside the executive mansion. We did not see Governor Yunkin walk by, but Governor, come on out and say hi next time that uh, you see us. My name is Michael Pope, and we've been joined by Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. And finally today, Richard Maxim from Alexandria has spent his life with the violin. He's the fifth generation in his family to continue the legacy of making the instrument. In the latest episode of Folklife Field Notes, our podcast with the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities, we profile Maxim Violins and Richard's apprenticeship with Danny Smith, an expert woodmaker and violin luthier from Lynchburg. Here's Pat Jarrett from Folklife to tell us more. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a fiddle and a violin? Yes, I have, actually. (laughs) I absolutely have. Let's talk about that today because I, I've spent some time with Daniel Smith down in Lynchburg and his apprentice Richard Maxim at his studio in Alexandria, which is quite a different shop than his mentor's shop in Lynchburg. You can imagine in Lynchburg, it's kind of expansive. He's got workbenches full of old tools from past teachers. And Richard, he lives in a tiny little townhouse and he's got one of the bedrooms that he's converted to a workshop. Nice. And there, he continues the craft of five generations of his family of making violins. So he's a fifth-generation violin maker. Maxim violins go back that far. And so, of course, I asked him the most important question. What's the difference between a fiddle and a violin? Realistically, it's something that comes down more to playing style. The instrument itself is the same. 
And the joke is that violin has strings and a fiddle has strings. Strangs. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's kind of silly, but Richard is a, kind of a soft-spoken individual. He definitely has reverence for the instruments and for his family's craft. I'm the fifth generation in the family to be involved with the violin in some way. There's always been somebody in each generation that has played the violin or made them. And when I was three, I got my first violin. I think their apprenticeship is really beautiful because Danny is kind of a good old boy down there in Lynchburg. He's uh, used to be a firefighter and was a bodybuilder. Wow. While I was at the fire department, I used to do a lot of repair work for players in the area. Then I uh, decided I wanted to build. And then I uh, met Russell Burford through uh, another fellow named his uncle named Donald Watts. He introduced me to Russell. Uh, Donald had built some instruments. He had Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner pull their bus on his land in Monroe, Virginia, and uh, out of that bus they would uh, go in the surrounding areas and do gigs. Well, anyway, he built a guitar for uh, Dolly, and I saw her on TV playing that guitar one time. So I went to see Russell, and we clicked instantly. So we built about 15 instruments, he got this cancer, you know, and uh, he didn't last long with it. So I carry on the legend of building violins. And I've built 75. I'm working on my second cello. I've repaired hundreds of instruments. Uh, it's been um, a passion of mine ever since I got out of the Army being interested in violin. The more you see, the, the more you learn. And when I started buying violins to work on, you know, they all pretty much looked the same to me, you know. And uh, some of the ones that were cheap, I thought were, the, were expensive and vice versa. But it starts to come together. Uh, you can hold a violin on the other side of the room and I can tell you right now if it's worth looking at again. It just happens, sort of like a child learning to talk. All of a sudden, it just happens. And you never stop learning that. The more you see, the more you learn. And Rich has become the teacher and me the student. That was a sample of the latest episode of Folklife Field Notes, our podcast with the Virginia Folklife Program, featuring Richard Maxim and Danny Smith. The full episode is at WMRA.org. For WMRA News, I'm Bob Levicki. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy your Friday.